This is why you can't get over it. Oh my god. Okay, I just got this, you guys. Whoa. Okay, you're getting gaslighted. That's why you can't get over this. Do you understand gaslighting? Okay, to gaslight is to convince somebody that their reality doesn't exist. It's actually one of the most psychologically damaging things that can happen to a person. So, let's say that right now, um, people in ape suits just started, like, swinging from the rafters. And I looked at you and I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. There's nothing happening. You guys are nuts. That's gaslighting. Now, obviously, with something like ape suits, right, it's not a big, huge deal to be gaslit. But when it's something that really matters, being gaslit is terrifying. The reason you're stuck is because, for you, you experienced a big loss, right? But on top of it, you're being told it never happened. That's gaslighting. So, basically, in order to try to get you to get over it, people are making it impossible for you to get over it. I, just so you know, I couldn't think of anything more horrifying if I tried. Like, when I just got what's actually going on here, I'm floored that you're even sitting here today. Like, could you, what you're going through emotionally is like, if a woman lost a baby and everyone was like, there never was one. There was never one. I don't know what you're doing. You need to get over it. There wasn't one. Oh my God. grieving process for having lost something if people are telling you it never existed. Where two people are in two different perceptual realities, there is always the risk for gaslighting. And this is so often why when you talk to two people involved in a situation, they both feel gaslit. When someone's sense of reality completely contradicts our own, we tend to doubt our own sanity especially if we have been heavily gaslit as a child and already doubt our ability to sense reality. It's 100% avoidable. But not as long as we're trying to make everybody stop feeling. You have to be able to be willing to feel. And I know that I'm like saying this over and over again, but it's honestly the answer to every question that you've asked. You have to be willing to feel the disintegration before the enlightenment, basically. You have to be the kind of person who is willing to feel what it feels like to lose everything. Mm. And, and, and that's, the thing that's is, not, that's not it's easy. Not, no, it's not easy, but what you start to find out is the resistance to feeling it is actually worse than the feeling itself. This is the massive, mind-blowing moment for most people, regardless of whether they're dealing with emotional pain or physical pain. It's not the pain of the thing itself that's killing us. It's the resistance to the pain of it. That's what's making us die. That's what's making us writhe around and defend our positions and not be able to even remotely allow or surrender ourselves to the multitude of rebirths we experience. Because we will. You can't, you can't avoid that. Regardless of whether you're a spiritual teacher and should be in a space of perfection, which I disagree with, or not, you're going to go through multiple rebirths. It's just, it's remarkable to me how we're able to live in our bodies while it's feeling like we're our own enemies, you know? 
Every aspect of you, every thought you think, every emotion you feel has extreme value. It's all trying to tell you something. It's all these undiscovered and, and abandoned aspects of yourself and suppressed aspects of yourself trying to come back so you can be whole again. And we keep saying, don't listen to the mind, it's gonna be after you. What is this weird emotional stuff? I just wanna take a pill. <laughs> it's understandable, but it's not gonna get us anywhere. After you have the willingness to feel everything, you are also capable of being present with anyone else, regardless of how they feel. That's what really scares people. What, what makes people not really capable of being there for other people is it has nothing to do with the other person. This is why so many people who get terminal illnesses lose everyone that they know. It's because those people don't want to feel. Of course, if you're going through something painful and I get to watch you die, that's going to bring up all my stuff. And I don't want to feel that stuff, so I'd just rather not be near you. So honestly, when we're looking at like the people in history who we see as just the most capable of really being truly present with other people, that's a person who has the bravery to feel anything. Themselves. <laughs> Even when I was going through those things I was going through as a child, I was dissociated from it most of the time. So there's an aspect of myself that's still stuck there. Until I go back. And once you let yourself fully move through that sensation that was really present during that time, it's dissolved. Now I'm going to make you wear something that really sucks to admit to, but is also the key to setting yourself free. If you've been heavily gaslit in your childhood, then you're going to have a fragment or a portion of your own consciousness whose job it is to gaslight you, but this time from the inside. Let's consider this an internal gaslighter. This part has the job of making you doubt your own sense of perception and reality. It's going to be the one that causes you to feel like maybe you didn't see what you thought you saw. Maybe you didn't hear what you thought you heard. Maybe you shouldn't feel what you feel. It's that guy. I'm going to give you a little tip. This internal part is what is creating so much of the condition that mainstream psychologists are calling borderline personality. This part is committed to doing two seemingly different or opposing things, but both of which keep them safe. This is what I mean. This part thinks that it's going to stay safe, obviously, in our childhood. We know that we're a social species, right? It's going to keep you safe by developing closeness or alignment with whoever's gaslighting you by making sure that instead of sticking to your solid truth, you're going to let go of it and become uncertain. You're going to start to doubt and distrust yourself because that's the only way to not set this person who is the gaslighter off. It's the only way to not be isolated in your own perceptual reality. To the opposite, it is also aware in an almost contradictory way that this person who is gaslighting them is actually gaslighting them. That they're convinced of a parallel perceptual reality which isn't true. And so, in response to that painful state, knowing how horrible it is to be on the receiving end of somebody who has a completely fixed and potentially wrong sense of reality, it's going to keep this person safe by also committing to uncertainty, to confusion. Why? So that they are nothing like the person who hurt them. 
Basically, this part wants to keep you in uncertainty and self-doubt so as to not be anything like the person who is gaslighting you, at the same time as trying to give you alignment and further closeness with the person who is gaslighting you. And the result is living in a feeling of confusion and insecurity about your own perceptions and sense of reality all day long. It is critical to integrate this internal gaslighter because that is the only way that you're going to come out of this attitude you're in of complete confusion and self-doubt and into a state of more solidness, of self-trust. Also, integrating this part is critical because if you are in this attitude of doubt and lack of self-trust, you are a magnet to gaslighters. And not gaslighters who are doing it unconsciously, gaslighters who do it consciously. Your life's going to be full of gaslighting because you're going to fall prey to it all the time. Because any time somebody contradicts your reality, it's going to cause you to pop out into Oh no, I'm doubting myself. Something to understand about gaslighting is that gaslighting is non-accommodative by nature. It is done to nullify and get rid of one person's perspective in favor of another person's perspective. Basically, it's designed to invalidate one person's perspective because it serves the other person to be right. And when we are being gaslit, what we're allowing to happen is for our perspective to be completely invalidated. What will happen in this case is that we will begin to suffer from a lack of self-trust. So this is the first thing to understand. If you have suffered from gaslighting or are maybe even a victim of it right now, then your real issue is that you have no trust for yourself. And a person cannot live in an atmosphere of lack of self-trust and be healthy at the same time. How can I tell if I have PTSD or complex PTSD when my psychiatrist has diagnosed me currently as having borderline personality disorder and originally I was diagnosed schizophrenic? I see you've taken your stroll down the mental health field path. Okay, I'm going to try to contain my level of fury relative to this subject. I know that many of you feel like a spiritual teacher should not have any strong emotions, but that's complete BS, and by the way, that's what happens when a spiritual teacher has cut themselves off from their temporal aspect. So I'm just going to tell you right now, the level of fury I feel towards this question is immense, because <laughs> you, my friend, have found the failings of our current society. Mental health needs to change completely. You're basically putting forth the fact that you've been diagnosed as all of these different things, as if it's a defect within you. All of these, that's why they can't nail down a particular diagnosis for you. It's all just symptomology. And these people are basically looking at your symptoms and trying to categorize you in a box so they know what treatment to give you. When they don't even understand what that treatment does in and of itself. Especially if medications are involved. So I need you to start to look at this in a different way. It doesn't matter whether you've been diagnosed PTSD, diagnosed borderline, diagnosed schizophrenic. All of these labels are just ways that one psychiatrist or psychologist can talk to another person and in one sentence can sum up a bunch of symptoms and give somewhat of an understanding about what's going on with this person. It does not mean anything for you. I also want you to see that all of these behaviors which are coming through as symptoms, which they label, are an adaptation. That means that the root of all of these things is in fact trauma. Now trauma forces us to separate off from the aspect that was vulnerable to the aspect that kept us safe. And oftentimes that creates behaviors in our adult life, especially teenage life and sometimes even childhood, 
that are less than beneficial to ourselves and behaviors that get us in a lot of trouble with the system. So I need you to see that these issues you're having are adaptations that you experienced as a result of the trauma that you went through. I'll give you an example with borderline, shall I? Borderline, you're going to see this with any kind of uh, attachment trauma. Now that's trauma relative to relationships and closeness. If you've had any kind of trauma there, abandonment is a big thing with people who are borderline. Invalidation is the biggest thing when it comes to people who are quote-unquote borderline. So let's look at this. Let's say you grew up in an invalidating environment, which you did. What happens when you have an emotion in that environment? Chances are your parent turned against it. So when you said, I feel really sad, the parent goes, there's no reason to feel sad right now, it's ridiculous. It's such a beautiful day, or something like that. It's an invalidating environment to your emotions, which leaves you in a position where you feel pain, but you're being told you shouldn't feel pain, and yet you feel it anyway, and so you start to distrust yourself, and so the emotion starts to build, and you actually create no capacity for regulation of your own emotions. Because how do we learn to regulate our own emotions? If our parent regulates our emotions, and if our parent is seeing that our emotions don't exist, can they regulate our emotions? No, so we never learn to do it. So basically in our adult life, what happens? We have no capacity to regulate our emotions. When somebody says something to us, we go from park to fifth and 50 seconds, and suddenly we're in a towering rage. And we go and look at that and we say, oh my God, it's borderline. That's not borderline, that's just a result of having a traumatic experience in childhood where our emotions were invalidated and so we had no hope of resolving them and so this is how we evolve in our adulthood. So we have to start to shift our focus within the mental health field towards what happened to this person and how can we provide the missing experience for this person so that we can give them different tools for coping with these types of experiences and triggers that they're experiencing in their adult life. I really don't want you to start looking at whether you have one of these conditions or another one of these conditions because as our society progresses, we're going to get rid of them entirely. It's no longer going to be a conversation whether this person has borderline or this person has schizophrenia. A person will be treated as a whole organic unit where all the trauma that they experienced creates ways of coping with it, adaptations. Do those benefit the person? No, so we're going to give them different tools. We're going to give them different experiences. Healing is all about experiencing the opposite, right? So if you experienced being invalidated in childhood, oh, weird, you can solve borderline condition by validating their emotions in real time and actually creating resolution for them. And then the whole condition is gone. So it's not a defect. It's an adaptation. See that about yourself. There is nothing wrong with you. That's my rant. I am so mad at the current mental health system, I can't even tell you, and I am personally taking it on. The best way to put it is, is that I create, I create a vibration of such intense authenticity, which is nothing but the unity between the inner world and the outer world. But if somebody has a discrepancy there and wants to keep it that way, they don't want to be anywhere near me. But if someone's ready to be seen, and a great many people are, then they want to be there. And it feels scary, but it also feels like freedom they want it desperately because they know that I'm going to see it, and guess what? Instead of condemning that, instead of wanting to bury it somewhere, I'm going to say, yeah, guess what? I see this aspect of yourself that completely cares only about yourself. Finally, we're fucking admitting it. Because we can't do anything until we do that. And why is it wrong? It's understandable why everyone is the way they are. I'm going to tell you that it's understandable why Hitler ended up the way he is. And if we keep making it wrong or bad, 
then the next person who feels like he's a Hitler is never going to be able to admit it. And then we're never going to be able to really be present with that person to work them into a state where they no longer feel like being a Hitler. You know? <laughs> it's like we can't heal something that we're not really truthful about. The person, a person needs to say, I have a broken bone before it's reset. If they're not willing to say, I have a broken bone, then they're never going to do that. And we've created a society as people where people aren't acceptable if they admit to how they feel. It's not acceptable to say, I'm really jealous of you if you called your friend up and you said, I'm getting married. We have to just stuff that and struggle with it and try to feel something else. We can't like let ourselves feel jealous. So we're never actually loved for who we really are. That's the honest truth. And that's the pain for all of us. The pain for all of us, and this is what started it in the first place. Do you want me to tell you the honest truth? So that as children, there were things that were acceptable and things that were unacceptable about us. The minute we got that idea, we realized love is survival, lack of love is death, because that's literally what it means as a child. So our only option basically is to separate ourselves as far as we can from the aspects that our parents think are unacceptable. We continue that, so we can never really touch love. And that's why people will run or come. <laughs> I love the feeling. It's my addiction. The feeling of somebody bearing all, basically. And having the experience of somebody being okay with that. Whatever they're in front of. It's like you're watching somebody unload one of those, those like, yokes that they put on oxen. The freedom of it is amazing. And it's like, and the real scary part, which I have to tell you is honest, <laughs> is that when you start doing that in your own life, like being totally authentic, totally honest to however you are in the present moment, you will lose a lot of friends and a lot of family, basically. Because people don't want to do that. For you to do that, it requires them to do it too. And if people aren't ready for that, they're done. They're gone. So basically, you have to be so damn sick of living your life in an inauthentic place where you keep pretending and that exhaustion comes because of the pretending that you're willing to just do whatever you need to do in the present moment and let your space be cleared. Now that's super scary because you feel like it's a mass abandonment. But what you find when you're willing to go through that because it literally is not worth living the way you were living anymore is that all of those places get filled back in with people that it can actually be there present for who you really are. And that's the place to family. <laughs> that's amazing. Until that's what, like... So what unconditional presence looks like to your childhood self, which never got it, is that when you are upset or when things were not going right, it's somebody getting down on their knees in front of you, holding your hands and saying, I'm going to be here with you no matter what. No movement. No words. No trying to change the way you feel. That's what love really is. It's a divine witnessing. That's the stillness that you feel present in people who are enlightened. It's unconditional presence. There is no difference between that and oneness, and there's no difference between that and love. So you can feel that divine, yes, you can feel that divine presence in a great many things. It's quite easy to feel in nature. We have to understand that attachment is born of fear. 
That's the reason why we clam on to someone. It's the reason why mom would need us or we would need mom. That feeling is actually fear, not love. It's the exact opposite of love. That's the difference between attachment and love. A, an energetic cord is always because of attachment, not because of love. It doesn't take a genius to see that our relationships on Earth today are completely dysfunctional. It also doesn't take a genius to see that if we don't fix this, we, the human race, are going to self-destruct. Today, I'm going to expose one of these patterns that causes the most damage between people, so that by being exposed to your conscious awareness, we will hopefully change it. We relate to each other as objects, not as living beings. Or people, we relate to them as if they are an aspect or a player of our own pretend game. This whole dynamic begins like almost every other pattern in the human race in childhood. We need to become very, very clear about the deep and often very dark reasons why we want to have a child before we have them. We need to accept that a child is born its own person with its own life. It is not an object, it is not a doll. It will not operate according to our schedule. It will have needs when it is incredibly inconvenient for them to have those needs. It will have its own feelings, its own wants, its own desires, its own preferences, and its own destiny. And often it will be very different to our own. What we need to teach our children is that they can have all of that selfhood without losing us at all. That they can guarantee that with that they can have us and permanently. We need to break free from our single family households. The destruction of the child rests upon our continual separation from the group. The more that we segment ourselves into single-family households and now broken homes, the less resources a child has available to them. All that they have at their disposal is the parents or sometime parent that is in their vicinity. And let's be honest, as parents, we can't always be there for our children. But we better believe it. it's our responsibility to find someone who can be when we can't. This way, they will not feel as if they must be a doll in our reality and they will never feel put on the shelf. Imagine being loved for what you actually are in forever. We need to see that we have a life regardless of whether people are or are not interacting with us, but it is a personal choice to have interaction in our life. We need to learn how to have ourselves and have other people too at the exact same time. Having people must never be contingent upon becoming exactly what they want us to be. The time has come to live an authentic life and to choose to see people for who they really are instead of to hold them to a role in our game of pretend. If we do this from the get-go with people, we will find people who are compatible to us and who really will love us for all that we are. To know how to do this, watch my video titled How to Be Authentic. People are worth infinitely more than their use to us in our life. If we approach the world in any other way than this, then what we're doing is treating people like objects. We're treating people like dolls. We're expecting them to fit into a game of pretend that we are playing in our own individual reality. By doing this, we are perpetuating the isolation on this planet. We are perpetuating the dislocation of each person from each other's hearts and from the web that connects us. If we perpetuate this, we will continue to create disconnection, the very disconnection that is at the heart of every act of terrorism and war that you see on this planet.
the time has come to demolish the self-concept of the defective doll and the doll that was able to operate perfectly in accordance with its instructions. The time has come to learn how to love what is real. It's not a secret that relationships with other people is the hardest part of life, but there is something that makes relationships not just difficult, but absolutely impossible. It's when we're not in reality within our relationships, and it happens more often than you think. I want you to imagine that there's a person in a prison cell. There's no way for them to get away from that prison cell, and the reality of being inside the prison cell is just too much for them. When this is the case, imagine that a coping technique that they use is a game of pretend. They start to create a fantasy, an overlay, if you will, that makes that prison a palace. The person who brings food to the cell every day is a servant, the walls are not the stone of a prison, they're the stones of a medieval castle, and the bars are pillars. The mind has a capacity to play pretend to such a degree that every element of reality can be seen as a different element in our own game of pretend. But this game is not really a game, because your mental and emotional survival depends on it. This pretend reality sits over actual reality like an overlay. Most every one of us is going to understand what this overlay is like because we pretended as children. When we were children, it wasn't very difficult if we were being the knight in shining white armor to imagine our dog was an actual dragon. Childhood is such a uniquely powerless experience. Children don't have control over other people in their reality, especially adults. They don't have much control over changing reality into what they want it to be like. You know, the family decides to move and it's not like the kid has a say in it, they're just going to be moved anyway. So if we experienced extreme degrees of powerlessness, to that degree we tended to play games of pretend. But for some of us, this game of pretend went far beyond just a childhood game of pretend. Other people may have thought that we were in reality when in fact we were seeing reality through the lens of our own overlay. Here's the thing. An overlay can be a coping mechanism that wreaks havoc in our adult life. Why? This game of pretend goes well beyond a fun game of pretend. It becomes literally the only reality that we are interacting with. Now that's an issue because obviously if we're not in reality we can't change anything about actual reality. And so when we're old enough to actually have the capacity to change elements of our life, we don't do it. An overlay is an extremely dangerous thing, especially in relationships and in adult life, because we don't see reality. We could be headed towards a cliff, but we're convinced it's a pretty horizon line. In other words, overlays make us commit to something that isn't real. Now eventually, it becomes obvious, as reality always does, that we are in an overlay. It becomes obvious that reality isn't actually what we're perceiving. And so when this overlay begins to corrode, we kind of fall through the holes in that overlay down into a reality that absolutely, completely sucks. Here's the reality. Many of us are living a very painful reality relative to relationships. We're lonely. We don't have what we really want, that vision. Maybe it's the perfect family. Maybe it's that place where you can really belong. Our commitment is to that picture, that vision of what we want. There's nothing wrong with creating that as long as we're creating it in reality. The danger is that this picture of what we want can become an overlay. It can be what prevents us from seeing reality. 
when this is the case, when we meet someone, we ignore all the red flags that are telling us that in reality this person does not match the vision of what we want. Instead, we become like casting directors, where what we want is actually the game of pretend that we are playing on the stage of life. We are simply trying to pick the person who acts the most like they could play the character in our vision of our life that we want. Any sign that we get that suggests that they could play that character well makes us convinced that they are actually that character in reality, but the truth is, they're not. We're not in love with the actual person, we're in love with the character we want them to play in our life. When they act in character, we approve of them. When they break from character, we disapprove of them and try to criticize them back into character. One of the best examples of this that I've ever seen of this overly versus reality relationship in action is the relationship between the student Betty Warren and her new husband in the movie, Mona Lisa Smile. We are also so desperate for relationships and so desperate to be wanted by somebody else and loved that we try to become the character in someone else's overlay so as to be loved. We're kind of like chameleons. And this always backfires as well. Why? Because we cannot keep up the act forever. So eventually, we break from character. And it's a recipe for disaster because the other person is going to feel completely duped by us. We're going to feel like no one loves me for who I really am. When we are engaged in an overlay instead of reality in a relationship, it usually begins to wear off when the limerence phase of a relationship begins to wear off. That's when we start to see the breaks, the holes in our overlay. It's sort of like a film strip sitting over reality and there are suddenly holes that are burning in the film strip. And every so often you catch a glimpse of that horrific reality that you would never want to have be true, but is the actual reality of the situation. It's at this point when you start to see those holes forming in the overlay where you can see glimpses of the reality underneath and eventually fall all the way through it to what actual reality is that you start to think about all those red flags you ignored to begin with. And at this point, you're pretty much really regretting that you ignored those flags. Because the reality that you're sitting in is one of loneliness and pain. Potentially an even worse reality than you were in before you got into the relationship. When we don't see people clearly and feel them and understand them and really, really perceive the reality of them and even watch the red flags, what we're doing is we're not in a relationship with the real person, we're in a relationship with an overlay. Now many people on the planet today, I mean a lot of them, are actually having relationships entirely in the overlay. They're not actually having a relationship in reality at all. Now this should scare the crap out of you. This is the adult version of two four-year-olds that are playing house, but who are completely convinced that reality is putting the baby to bed, going shopping, and living in the playhouse. If you're the kind of person who has an intense vision for what you want and are desperate to get it, like so desperate that you cast characters as actors in the vision whose actual real personalities and authentic truths do not match the characters themselves, the unfortunate reality is that you will be a match to people who do the same thing, and will therefore cast you as a character in their vision who is nothing like the real you. You will also be a match to people who pretend the reality of them is the same as the character you want them to play in your vision, when the truth of them is quite the opposite. You will end up in relationships where genuine incompatibility exists. For more information about this, watch my video titled Incompatibility, a Harsh Reality in Relationship. You will also end up in a relationship based mostly on potential. To understand more about this, watch my video titled Priceless Relationship Advice. People are really confused about love and sex addiction. To be honest with you, the majority of experts on love and sex addiction have absolutely no idea what's really creating it. 
What sex and love addiction is, is actually an addiction to overlay. Now like any addiction, it's basically an attempt to get out of pain. So it's not about the addiction to whatever it is itself, it's about that is the strategy that was found to get away from the pain of the wound that is underneath the addiction. In the case of sex and love addiction, it is an extreme isolation, an extreme lack of emotional needs being met. And when we have no way of dealing with that, one of the only ways to deal with it, as we saw in the prison scenario, is to pretend your way out of it. Love and sex addicts tend to attach to people instantaneously because of, they're not really in a relationship with the reality of a person themselves. They're in a relationship with the character in their own overlay, which is a character they're so desperate for and a character that they know all too well. But love and sex addiction is just the far end of the scale of what most people actually on earth do, which is to get into a relationship with something that doesn't actually exist, to be outside of reality, considered inside reality in a relationship. If we want to create the kind of life we want to be living, we have to do something that's quite difficult for us. We have to create a kind of cognitive dissonance state within us where we are holding two often contradictory perspectives. The first is reality, what is. The second is what we want, that vision. Chances are you already know what you want. Chances are, you're the kind of person who knows what you want and want it so desperately that you are more trending towards the direction of somebody who sees that something is what you want when it really isn't what you want. You just want it to be what you want so badly. So the majority of the emphasis that I'm going to put on this education in this video provided is on figuring out how to see reality. So often we are so desperate for what we want, we're like a person dying of thirst. We'll ignore the warning signs and drink poisoned water. So obviously staying out of this pattern is about learning to see reality even when it breaks your heart to do it. Even when it feels like you have to say no to water when you're dying of thirst. To get into reality we have to try to see all of the situation, all of who someone is, both good and bad. We have the tendency when we are engaged in overlay to sweep anything that contradicts our vision under the rug. We allow ourselves to be spun by someone's words as well, instead of the way they feel energetically and the way they act. So here are some ways to get into reality about a situation and about someone. 1. Put the person or put the situation itself on mute. You can either do this in the mind's eye as a visualization where you're looking back at some circumstance involving this person or the situation, or you can find some way to prevent your hearing while you're actually watching the person. And I want you to ask yourself, if I was just a neutral observer that knew nothing about this person or this circumstance, and I was literally asked to sit down and just watch this silent movie, what would my perception of reality actually be? Words, they can lie, but energy and actions do not lie. So it's really important to put things on mute so you can see the actual reality that is hiding beneath those words. For example, a person may say, I love you more than anything, I'm completely here for you. But when you put them on mute, you may notice they're completely focused on their computer or other projects, and there is seldom a moment where they are actually focused on you. <laughs> 2. When you perceive a red flag, a red flag being, of course, something that happens in a situation or with a person that makes you think for a minute, maybe this is really not the perfect picture of what I want. 
When you feel that hit in your stomach of that fear or that potential disappointment and even desperation that arises that, oh my gosh, that doesn't fit in with this, this picture that I have of this vision, don't sweep it under the rug. Use that as a, a bell, basically, that is ringing in your psyche saying, wait, 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 you gotta pay attention to this. For example, one of my clients was at a dinner on a date with a man who was describing how in his previous marriage, before he decided to get a divorce, he had had several affairs. Now, he obviously was able to spin the story so that he was the victim. It was really good that he did this. Why? Because he was so starved emotionally in the relationship, XYZ. Because he made himself out to be a victim, it made sense to this woman. She ignored the red flag, that feeling that came up in her stomach and said, wait, this doesn't feel right. Now, obviously, she regretted that when a few years later, after they were married, he cheated on her and did the exact same thing. He told the woman who he had an affair with that he wasn't even married. And more than that, told her that it was obviously, once this person found out, the wife's fault because he was so starved to death by her, even though none of this was communicated in the relationship. Now you can bet that when that happened, she was really kicking herself for the fact that she hadn't noticed that that red flag was actually a red flag. Three, try to observe somebody when they are not aware that they are being observed. People are interesting when they know they're being watched. They change their behavior. They act in a way that they know will get them approval and acceptance and so that they'll be perceived the way they want to be perceived. But to really see somebody is to see them when no one's watching. That's when their guard is down. That's when you get to see who they really are. Four, you gotta start to notice patterns. If we have asked somebody to change something about themselves or about their behavior towards us because it's hurting us, and we notice that the pattern continues and they don't really change, there's a point at which we have to come to reality, which is that they're probably never gonna change. What we are seeing is what we're gonna get. This is the reality of them. We need to accept and take action accordingly rather than get caught in the cycle of constantly trying to fix them into being a match to our overlay. Five, let go immediately of the idea that somebody can heal into becoming the perfect person that fits our overlay or our vision. This is literally a recipe for disaster and so many of us get into relationships with this idea. We see the potential inherent in somebody and we feel as if we can be their savior or their salvation. We can rehabilitate them into being exactly what they want them to be. And trust me, they won't appreciate it. The vision that somebody can be healed into matching our overlay is still us only engaging in our overlay, our vision, and not even really seeing them. We have no idea if it's what they really want, and I can guarantee you something. If somebody really wants to change something about themselves or really wants to heal in some way, you're not going to have to cajole them into doing it. They're going to take the initiative completely on their own without you even trying to do anything. So you need to ask yourself the question in relationships or in situations. If I was to commit myself to this exact thing as it is today, could I do that? Knowing it would never change. Six, trust your feelings. Your feelings and your intuition are always a very powerful representative of your personal truth. I want you to imagine that somebody has inserted a rod straight through your crown chakra, right down through the core of your body, kind of running along the inside of your spine. Your personal truth is going to show up as sensations and messages closest to that rod. You could consider this rod your core. When you're not sure about reality or truth, sit down, close your eyes, and be unconditionally present with whatever is occurring close to that rod. 
After a time, you can ask it questions relative to the situation or person in question and see how it responds. Even when we commit to maintaining an open mind, we have to do so with a firm grasp on our personal truth, and we must trust the feelings and intuitions that come as messengers of that personal truth. 7. Don't look just at how someone treats you. This is a huge mistake that we make because when we're in somebody's favor, we love to feel like we're that special without thinking about the fact that maybe one day we won't be. What we have to pay close attention to is how this person treats other people, how this person treats children and animals, and how this person treats their opponents and rivals and enemies. Because there is no guarantee that one day they won't turn you into one. In other words, there is no guarantee in a relationship that someone won't treat you like other people. I'll give you an example. I counseled a woman who married a high-powered executive CEO type of man. Now this man, she had to watch for years belittling other people, playing vicious zero-sum games, and playing everybody in his business life like a very dangerous game of chess, always for his benefit. Sometimes she had to apologize for him, in fact. But she told herself the story, this could never be me on the other side of that, because after all, this is not business and I'm his wife. It wasn't until that relationship started to corrode that she got to see the harsh reality, which was that she was going to be treated exactly like he treated other people in that business transaction. The second that that relationship dissolved, she was no longer his wife. She was a business rival. She had to accept the very harsh reality that every single move he made financially in their marriage was to put himself at an advantage and to put her at a disadvantage in the event of divorce. He had been playing a chess game to keep his own best interests secure in case they split up, and soon she found herself losing everything she had thought they built together. As if there never was a marriage. He switched into treating her with the old, same, calculating, zero-sum, cold game approach as a business rival. Long story short. When it comes to seeing people in reality, seeing how they treat strangers, treat other people, treat your friends, treat children, treat animals, and treat rivals, is everything. 8. We all come into our relationships with blind spots and biases. This is because we all come into relationships with life experience. Obviously, based on our life experience, some of us are not going to see things that other people see. And we're also going to have strong biases towards things and strong projections. To understand more about projection, watch my video titled Projection, Understanding the Psychology of Projection. For example, let's say we grew up with a narcissistic father. Chances are we're so used to this being the way that relationships go that we're not even going to recognize a narcissistic man when he comes into our life. We're going to think it's normal. Other people may see that person go, yikes, my gosh, I can't stand the way that they're acting. But for us it's normal, so it's a blind spot. Or, for example, let's say that we had a mother who was suicidal and highly volatile emotionally. We may get into a relationship with another woman who's highly volatile and emotional. But we may be telling ourselves we're going to get just as hurt with this person as we were hurt with mom. Well, maybe it's not really the case. That's a case of projection. We can't see the person clearly for who they really are or who they aren't because we're projecting our concept of mom onto them. When we have these blind spots, it is a good idea to involve other people's perspectives as well as to develop awareness in the areas where our blind spots and projections exist. 9. Take the time to get to know somebody. Treat this process like a touch-and-go type of relationship. You walk a tiny bit into the water, and based on that, you get more information that tells you whether to move deeper or not. 
If you move deeper, it gives you more information that tells you whether to move deeper or not. Now, obviously, doing this if you're desperate for relationships is really, 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 really hard. It's a little bit like putting a rice bowl in front of somebody who's starving to death and saying, just eat one rice grain at a time. It's also exhausting and desperate to think of the idea of putting your energy into somebody to the degree where you realize, oh crap, this is bust, and having to pull out and start all over from scratch again. But I can promise you, it is four million times better than ending up committing 100% to shark waters. It's a hundred times better than getting yourself all the way in to a situation that is extremely difficult to get all the way out of, where there are casualties involved. In other words, even though it's torturous to sip water when you're starting, it's better than getting so poisoned that you can't get up off the floor. Make sure before you commit to a partnership or commit to fully trusting someone that you have seen them in their good times and in their bad times. Make sure you have seen that they will consistently take your best interests as part of their own best interests. Make sure that you really see, hear, feel, and understand the reality of who they are right here and now if nothing were to positively change about them. Sometimes you're going to have to take risks in life. You're going to hear me teaching about this all the time. Sometimes you will have to move forward with your fear. But sometimes moving forward despite your fear is just happening because we are ignoring reality. And it's us being dumb instead of brave. It is in our best interest to discern the difference. To figure out whether we are in reality or whether we are in an overlay. Because unless we are able to get into reality and really admit to it, regardless of how painful it is, we will never be able to create the real life we want in reality. Instead, we will be condemned to never really seeing, feeling, hearing, or touching other people. And we will be condemned to them never really feeling, hearing, touching, or understanding us. Why? Because we will only ever be characters in each other's Scarlet. Is that you? Um, maybe she's my alter ego. Maybe she's my better half. But is it is it your Slim Shady or your Siggy Stardust or something like that? <laughs> maybe so. Yeah? Yeah, maybe so. How much of Scarlet is you? What is she like? Well, that changes. I guess um, the story is based on real people and real experiences. And it's really about a woman who's questioning what she believes in. And she's questioning the soul of this creature that we call America. I wrote it um, when I was on the road last year. But is it easy to write songs when you have a character like Scarlet or Siggy Stardust or something like that? Honestly. Which is a part of yourself? Honestly, it's um, feelings of feelings. I mean, if you're writing about being rejected by somebody you love, whether you're Tori or Scarlet, I think they they feel the same thing. Okay. Uh, when I saw you play here, I was just thinking because I play the guitar myself, and for me the guitar is a woman. What gender do you have on the piano? They're all she's. They're all she's. Yes, but they don't all have male lovers. But what about many this one? of them do. I'd have to spend a bit more time with her. But what was your first impression of her? She has a male lover. <laughs> it's bloody cold up here. So when are you coming back to Sweden? Um, very soon in the new year. Mm -hmm. It's really, really cold. Thank you very much for coming.
So now that it's become completely obvious that fantasy and pretend is a coping mechanism, and almost I would say a coping mechanism to end all coping <laughs> mechanisms because it, ha it sucks you out of life and into non-reality, it has become exceedingly obvious that being in reality is the goal of life. It is the meaning of life, and it is the mission of life. And I've heard people say before the idea that reality is made up of both our illusions and what is real, and just like everything else in duality, in the duality of Maya, there has to be what is unreal for there to be what is real. So, in the acceptance of the fantasy realm, we can find reality again, and we can own all that we are and love all that we are. That being said, I would like to kick the overlay habit completely, because it only holds you away from what you really want. And I think the reason that I got so deep with the habit of overlay was simply like what Teal said, extreme isolation when no one will play with you or it feels like no one is participating with you. There seems there's only one option and you don't believe that other people are actually characters, at least in my case. It's just the sense that um, you don't have anyone real to work with, so you just work with your imagination. So that's quite sad. And one more thing to point out from my own um, personal log of mental stress is that that is the concept of intermittent reinforcement in relationships. So you're susceptible to falling into a pattern of intermittent, a desperate pattern of intermittent reinforcement with someone I've realized if you are in extreme isolation and that human need for human contact is extremely high in you. And what happens in an intermittent reinforcement relationship is that you're completely addicted to the situation and, the, and in my case addicted to the overlay that that situation represents. So you're almost like you are not actually present in the relationship, just the, just the same almost as when someone reaches for their heroin or for their, for their drug, they're not quite there, they're just going after it by impulse. So it's a very hard habit to kick. And in my case, it like literally killed me. Like it um, was so horrifying. Oh my God, so horrifying. Just, I, I, I just hope this never happens again to me. Just, I got the, it's just like with someone who is addicted to a drug, how they, you can't really feel happy, or even yourself, unless you take the drug. And so you just disappear into a world where the drug is the only thing that's important. It's just terrible. Um, and then you lose your actual sense of self. And I am still in recovery and have a lot of fragmentation to pick up because of this hellhole of overlay. But at least I'm hyper aware of it now. I think the only way 
to actually get rid of overlay in any relationship and I feel like all of our relationships suffer with this idea of overlay where instead of seeing the real person in front of you you're seeing them through oh this is the picture that I have of who this person is as a friend or as a parent or as a family member the only way to really get over using overlay as a coping mechanism which I'm telling you we're all doing like constantly is to Ha really like, truly defragment ourselves it's almost the same as we move out of I know I'm jumping a bit but we move out of any of the mindsets that we have where we need to be saved by other people or that other people need to be anything in particular for us it's it's this whole nother world where you really walk independently and you don't um, project onto others. And not that we will never project onto others, but the whole point is that you can only see people who they are when you're for who they are when you're not putting an overlay on them. This couldn't be more important. And whenever we feel like we are having to play an overlay, it's really how would I say this? It's really a main indication of us not really feeling like we can go after the true life of our dreams and that we need to imagine it instead. So this is beyond crucial for actually um, moving towards what we want in life because the second life becomes more beautiful than, um, than what we can imagine, then, then the addiction's gone. But I would never um, fault one person because I, I know what it's like to be alone and in agony for months and months and months. And God forbid if anyone tells you, you shouldn't start imagining things when that's what you're experiencing. My name is Elisa Whiteglass and I'm the singer of Arch Enemy. We are an extreme metal band based in Sweden. I sing uh, with, I guess, what people would call like a death type of vocal. Like, you know, extreme metal songs are, are similar to other songs in the sense that we have structured lyrics, we have a theme, you know, so it's not just like screaming to make noise as like a, a rhythmic instrument, like it's still being a vocalist in the sense of portraying lyrics through a song. Even when I'm just doing like death growls, I like to like infuse a little bit of melody, include some, you know, sort of pick up on notes that the guitars are playing and kind of pull that into the scream also so it's not um, just a scream, just to give a little bit more variety in the sounds of uh, the lyrics that I'm, that I'm singing. Yeah. I never took any vocal lessons or anything, so I'm like not, I'm probably doing it all wrong. I don't know, <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not trained uh, classically in any way. A lot of people have different styles. Like I know a lot of singers that sing in this technique and some are actually really quiet when they're making this and it's, they're almost just vibrating their vocal cords without any real air coming out and other people are super loud. Really the most important thing, whether you're screaming or singing operatically or doing you know, a power metal voice, is you have to make sure that you can sing the next night. So you have to be extremely careful with what you eat, what you drink, what you do. You know, exercise is a must. No, I mean, me personally, I don't smoke or do drugs or drink. Like, I'm, I'm straight edge and it makes it an, an antisocial life, actually, because you can't talk to anyone, you have to go straight to bed, but um, people would expect it to be a man's making that noise. And sometimes people still, like, they'll They'll hear it before they see it, and then when they see me doing it, they're like, what? 
I personally feel really good about screaming. I don't feel like, oh, I'm not a girl anymore, or like, I feel powerful and strong and even more feminine when I scream. I just wanted to take a few minutes to express my sincere thank you to everyone who has supported my music over the past 10 years. It's been a crazy, crazy bunch of years, some struggles, some rewards, but overall it's just been amazing thanks to fans who are the ones who make it possible for musicians to continue cranking out songs and putting on shows. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. I'm really excited for you to hear what I've been working on recently. I know you're going to love it as much as I do. Arch Enemy is War Eternal. It's going to be amazing. I'm really excited to share it with you. It's coming soon. And once again, thank you. I look forward to rocking out with you for many more years to come.